Let's welcome Ian. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see you. Uh, if you are a visitor this morning, um, my name is Ian. As Adam has already said, um, I'm one of the elders here. And if you are joining us today, we are starting a new series today. Uh, we are starting The Greater Story. Um, I'm excited about this series. I love doing preaching series um, rather than just you know, picking out favorite passages from the Bible and then speaking on that. We like to study books in the Bible. We looked at uh, the Gospel of Luke for three and a half years um, we looked at the book of Ephesians for a year. Uh, at the beginning of last year, we did an origin series looking at who we are, where we're from, where we're going. We did the big question series as well last year. All of these you can find online. Go to our YouTube channel and stuff. You can find all of that. That's really good. Uh, but we just think it's good to have a real mixture of preaching, of thematic and exegetical preaching. So thematic is looking at themes through the Bible, and exegetical preaching is looking at chapter and verse and working out and what they mean and how they apply. Okay. And just to reiterate, really, we take the Bible seriously. If you are a visitor here this morning, I'd like you to know, as a church, we take the Bible very seriously. We believe it is the inerrant word of God. It carries the full authority of God. And it cannot be changed to suit modern minds or desires. We are under its authority. We are not over it, changing it to suit our needs. And now this series as well will probably sway between the two of thematic and exegetical as we'll look at particular verses whilst we still go through the main theme of Scripture. We will work our way through looking at some of the most famous stories uh, within the Bible while standing back and looking at the, the grand theme all the way through. And our prayer for this series is that we will grow in our love for God and for his word, to grow a deeper desire to know his word better. And you'll be pleased to know we're starting in the right place today, at the beginning, in Genesis that would be helpful, I thought, in the Old Testament. And we will be in the Old Testament for just over a year, actually. And just so you know how we're going to, to break it up um, and how the books are traditionally divided up, um, there are 66 books in the Bible. There are 1,189 chapters. Anyone know how many verses? Come on, anyone would want to take a guess? Adj, come on, you, you, know, you know these things. 31,102 verses. And this is kind of traditionally how, I know it's a bit small, but hopefully you can, this is often how they're broken up. There is the, in the Old Testament, there is law, there is um, the history, there's poetry, major prophets, minor prophets, 39 books in the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, we see the history of Jesus in the Gospels, the history of the church in Acts. We see Paul's letter to churches, Paul's letter to individuals, and letters by others. Okay, that's kind of how it's broken up, 27 books in the New Testament. And we're going to be breaking up this series as follows. We'll be starting by looking at the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Um, it's often referred to as the Torah or the teaching or law. And the other name, for, it's just other name for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And penta means five, okay. 
just to help us understand that. And if we're going to make sense of the storyline of the Bible, we must take time to understand how the story begins. A knowledge of this, of the first five books, is essential for being mature, biblically literate Christians. In the first five books, we discover not only how the universe began, how we came into being, how sin entered the world, we also learn God's plan to set his people free and set them on a path of obedience and blessing. And this is kind of how we're going to be breaking it up. So after the Pentateuch, we've got history, which is Joshua to Esther. Uh, There's poetry and prophets, the Gospels, Acts, Epistles and Revelation. And at some point in the future... Hopefully you're all still with us. We'll finish that, but we reckon it's going to take around two years to get through. Now, what I'm also really excited about is that we are doing this through the whole church. So from the creche to us in here, to the kids' work downstairs, to the youth in the evening, we are all going to be looking at this. So today, downstairs, Clara is looking at creation with the kids. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you have children, this gives you an opportunity to go home and speak to them about it. If you don't have children, you can still go home and talk about it. Um, There's also a a book that I would encourage you to buy if you have primary school age children, The Biggest Story Bible. As I said the other week, I've been going through this with my own kids. And actually, we've had some wonderful times reading the stories. The the artwork in it is beautiful. this is, I think this happens when you have daughters. Um, we broke into spontaneous worship after reading this. Um, we just sung together. We were, we were reading Job and we broke into worship. This is how good this book is. Well, it's the Bible, isn't it? And actually, this is what leads us into worship. Now, just so we're clear, it's not always like that. Often, uh, they're brushing their hair, they're drying their hair, they're getting distracted. So it's not always like that. And I end up getting cross when I'm trying to talk to them about grace. So that's, that's how it goes sometimes. Okay? So it's not always um, beautiful worship times together. Um, now, and I'm sure as we go through this, I think there'll probably be things that we miss that you might think we should include. There might be some favorite stories. But I'm just, what I'm hoping to achieve that we, through this, we know our Bibles better and we see the bigger picture. But as we become more biblically literate, we draw near to the heart of God and get excited for his mission. This is an exciting book, ladies and gentlemen. It's an exciting read. It is unique. It was written across 2,000 years by 44 different authors, at least, in three languages, in nine countries, and in three continents. It speaks of varied voices of kings and wandering nomads. Shepherds, armies, queens, mothers, poets, thinkers, even fishermen. But all through these different stories, it speaks of one consistent voice from start to finish. Uh, Phil Moore, uh, who has written many books on the Bible, he sometimes uh, describes it that we get confused when we read the Bible because we miss the big picture from start to finish. It's like entering into a film halfway through and not understanding the plot. Like imagine you've, you've walked in, you're going to watch The Lord of the Rings and you walk in halfway through The Two Towers, which is the second film in the trilogy in case you didn't know. Halfway through that film 
And you go, why are these small people with big hairy feet going on this big adventure? Why is this weird little creature obsessed with jewellery? That's what it's like. And that's why we need to get caught up in this greater story of Scripture. A story greater than our own lives as well. To give us perspective. That as we discover this story, we can find our own place in this too. We see God's great plan of salvation, his plan of salvation from beginning of time, of God using ordinary men and women to work out his plan of this great gospel truth. God's great salvation plan from beginning to end. And as we start to look at this bigger picture, this greater story, the overarching explanation of God's purposes and plans, his mission... The mission that God has been purposing and accomplishing from eternity to eternity, he is revealed. God is revealed in scripture as personal, purposeful, goal-orientated. And he starts by working out his goal, being satisfied with his creation. He, from the very beginning, was after a people. From the beginning, God was committed to being totally covenantly, eternally blessing the nations. That's why we love to celebrate the nations. It wasn't just a last week thing. We celebrate the nations and we'll take the flags down when we've got a bit more enthusiasm to do that. But we thought we'd get a couple of weeks worth out of it at least. But it looks good, doesn't it? But he starts his purpose in creation He moves on to the conflict problem with human rebellion and then spends most of this narrative journey in the story of redemptive purposes being worked out through human history. And then it finishes, finally, with eschatological hope for a new creation. Eschatological. Eschatology, when we break the word down, just to help us understand this, means last thing. So eschat is Greek for last or furthest, as in the last thing on the spectrum, if you like. And ology always means study of, so you put them to work, two words together, eschatology, study of last things. The gospel is all the way through. In the Bible, it is not a set of individual stories to tell you how to live in order to find God. That is not what the Bible is about. The Bible is a single story about how God came down to earth for us. That's what it's about. Now, We have studied the New Testament over the last few years, as I've mentioned. Uh, We've looked at Luke and Ephesians, but we need the Old Testament to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. This is what New Testament writers are referring to all the time, and they're drawing on it. It will help us, I hope, from moralizing Old Testament stories to instruct us, or allegorizing, kind of giving meaning to stories that aren't there. Right, as an example, and we will look at this, of David, King David, defeating Goliath. And we then interpret that as our battles with our own giants, defeating them with stones of prayer. That's not necessarily what the story is about. And today we're going to look at the beginning, at creation. We're going to see creation, the creation account is more of a kind of telescopic look rather than microscopic looking at the detail. And what we're reading when we come to the book of Genesis is more the why rather than the how. And we read Genesis 1, it's actually like a poem. 
And Genesis 2 is kind of more historical reporting. There's this beautiful repetition in Genesis 1. There was morning and there was evening. God said it was good over and over. So we don't necessarily press in for the details here from Genesis 1. Genesis 2 is almost like a different genre, actually, of writing. But we're just going to read part of Genesis 1. And this is well known, so we're just going to take some sections of it. From Genesis 1, firstly, 1 to 8, says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then a little further down in chapter 1, uh, we see in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. And then we're going to finish on verse 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And then the last verse in chapter one, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. We see at the beginning, God creating everything, not a result of chance. This isn't just a colliding of molecules. It was an intentional, purposeful action by God. And we know that through reading other parts of the Bible, God has always been. The Trinitarian God has always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John uh, chapter 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Paul says in Ephesians, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. That's an amazing passage, isn't it? It's understandable there'll be love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit even before the foundation of the earth. But this passage tells us that God was thinking back then of us, of a people. He was thinking in love towards us before the foundation of the earth. 
The wonder of this passage tells us that even before anything came into being, God, through his pleasure and will and love for us, chose us to be holy and blameless. God, it seems, right from day zero, minus, or negative, was looking forward to the time when there would be many in his family. Surely God has a wonderful plan and wants to include us in it. We see Adam and Eve at the beginning of all humanity. Equality and dignity for every human being. It says in Hebrews, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. The assumption always is of God. In the beginning, God, the creator, the one who speaks creation into being. And these first four words launch us into the whole chapter, which shows us the incomparable greatness of the creator God. Genesis 1 tells us ten times God said, and it informs us that as a result, it was so. He doesn't struggle and sweat to create the world. I've talked about my own creations before in the past, and uh, last year, some of you know, we built an extension, and I did about 50% of it. That's why quite a lot of it is not finished yet. Um, but I, I struggled to make it, and there were some mistakes and some minor frustrations along the way, but he didn't. He just spoke. He doesn't struggle and sweat. He says, you know, there are, we're told there are at least 100 billion stars and just this, the Hebrew word very simply tells us, he also made the stars. Wow. So the start of the Bible declares God is God. He is mighty and we are not. He is the creator and we are his creatures. We read the awesomeness of this God. He is awesome. I realize this on a regular basis as he creates out of nothing by his word and I'm struggling to strive and create. And here in the first book of the Bible, we have this amazing creation story. My creation was okay. It is still unfinished in most rooms of the house. But his was perfect. Over time, the uh, Hebrews, the Israelites, would have heard lots of different creation stories before Genesis was written. I mentioned this actually in our origin series, I think that was last year. And you can go back because we'll, we look at that in a bit more detail. But uh, the Mesopotamians told them that their god Marduk killed the ocean goddess Tiamat and created the universe from her severed remains. Nice. The Egyptians had told the Israelites that their god Atum had created the world from a mixture of his own spit, snot and semen. Nice. People get their own ideas about how we got here. What caused it? What happened? I've mentioned before about an alpha attendee believed that we were beamed down by aliens. People often believe certain things about how we got here, sometimes unchallenged. And it would have been unchallenged in Egypt too, until Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He spent a few weeks on Mount Sinai with God, after which he wrote Genesis where he tells a different story. And we'll look at that story of Moses coming down the mountain. 
And it tells the story that the world was, wasn't created by Atom or Marduk, but by a different one whose name is Elohim. This was not just another name for the sun god of Egypt or the moon god of Mesopotamia. And that's why Moses deliberately doesn't use the word sun and moon in this chapter. Because God is a self-sufficient, independent God who shows us three in one. He is three in one. He's creating the universe out of love, not out of loneliness. He uses the plural name, Elohim, which can be translated as God, as well as God, but takes the singular verbs to make it clear which word translators should choose. Hebrew nouns can be singular, one, dual, two, or plural, three or more. And this word, Elohim, or God, is plural, as is Adonai, or Lord, which is used from Genesis 15, uh, verse 2 onwards. He is one God, yet he creates by his word through his spirit, as we see the hinting of Trinity from the very beginning. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And this word God occurs over 30 times in Genesis 1. There's one for each of its verses. To make it clear that the creation story of the ancient worlds were mistaken, the universe began with the only true and living God. So we see evidence of the Trinity in creation, that it's all about God. Adam and Eve were created, but it wasn't about them. They were not the key players. The focus is God. He is the real reason we are here. It's all about God, and we get to serve as extras in his story. I've quoted this before. It's a a favorite of myself and Rubens, the Westminster Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a good one, isn't it? The main thing that should alert us to this is the fact that God gets to call the shots in our lives. He is the creator, the designer, and the sustainer of all. And what we discover in next week's sermon when we look at the fall of man is that mankind has been pushing against this from the very beginning. We want to be our own gods, the master of our own ship, the king of our own castle. But why should God get to call the shots in our lives? Because he is the creator, he is the designer, and he is the sustainer of all. And this first verse can be offensive to many. God, something outside of time and matter, created something out of nothing. And on those grounds, he gets the authority to do pretty much, do and say anything he likes through the next 31,100 verses in the Bible. Genesis 1 tells us the world, the earth was formless and void, and God spoke, and the Spirit brought order. We see the eternal nature of God. We see his good bringing light into darkness, order out of chaos. We see the Trinity at work in the Spirit, the Word and God operating in these first few verses. God is the reason for the origin of everything. He is the reason for us being here. God made humans, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. And we see that through this, humans, being made in the image of God, have worth and value. We see the climax of creation in day six in humanity. And we see it kind of in the first poem, really, in the Bible, in Genesis 1, 27 to 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God's image bearer came up from the ground. God created man. He said, 
everything else he said it's good when he created man and woman he said it was very good and on the seventh day as it was meant to be God is resting and dwelling in the holy places like the whole world is a holy temple where God dwells with his people this is God's vision for the whole world to dwell, to rule the world in harmony with his people. And day seven, also in Genesis 1, has no end. You notice there's no morning and evening in day seven. It is the goal of creation, and day seven is so important that the number seven is woven into the story all the way through. There's seven days of creation. Seven times we see God's description of creation of good and very good. Seven Hebrew words in the opening verse. Two times seven Hebrew words in the second verse. The verse about the seventh day has three lines of seven Hebrew words. And Genesis 1 is doing more than just telling us about creation. It's about God sharing his creation with his images. That's us. That the co-eternal Godhead who lived in perfect union... Three persons, one being, wanted to widen the circle. To have a people to share their love with. Who despite knowing what would happen at the beginning when man rejects God's rule, he would then spend the rest of the story trying to redeem his people. To enter into God's rest that one day he would restore what was lost and fulfill the purposes of God in creation. And there are many things that can be said about creation. And there's some things I just want to touch on lightly, quickly, that we did in more detail in the Origin series. So you can go back and listen to that. But just to remind you, Genesis 1.27 says we have value and purpose because we are human. God takes human beings, puts them on the frontiers of the ends of the earth, says, go, represent me, be my image bearers. And anyone who walks into this territory will see and recognize there is a God who is like you, who is the creator of the earth. This means as well, when God sees um, people defacing or dishonoring other image bearers, he is angry. Because God looks at the individual who is oppressed or marginalized or tortured or abused or killed or whatever it is, and he says, how dare you deface my image? This person bears the image of God. And you are not to touch them like that or speak to them like that because they bear my image. So whether you are nine weeks old in the womb or you are 99 years old in the old people's home, you're a human and you're an image bearer of God. You are blessed and you are commissioned to take God's presence to the ends of the earth. He says to us what he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Human rights are not a human concept. They are a divine gift to God's image bearers. These two chapters set some boundaries for human rights as well. We do not have any God-given right to choose our gender or sexuality. Jesus points us back to these verses in Mark 10 when he teaches us at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate this. And the church needs to be a place where the gender confused or the same sex attracted are welcomed in. And there is a safe place for them because we are all broken and in need of salvation. And what we cannot do is confuse other people's sin being more serious than our own. Put a particular struggle outside of the bounds of what is acceptable. Because we need to welcome people in without affirming their lifestyle or what they're doing. But say there's a God here that loves you and he has a plan for you and a purpose for you. God has something to say on the givenness of biological sex who we can and can't marry. That he created the union of marriage between a man and a woman. It is to be one of the principal ways in which we get to bear the image of the triune God. The one God who exists in three persons, who are both the same God and different persons. We have no right to marry multiple partners. The two will become one flesh. There are some Things that are acceptable for divorce, but they are very few. We don't have the right to pursue so-called sexual freedom before marriage, or after marriage, or after the divorce papers are signed. Jesus warns us sternly, what God has joined together, let man not separate. There's a conference coming up actually with Newground which is our family of churches that we're a part of. It is run by a guy called Andrew Bunt, who came to speak on the Origin series, and it is called Equip, Sexuality and Gender. And it's kind of how to lovingly reach people without affirming lifestyle. And we're going to send out the link this week. And actually, I think we as Christians need to be equipped because we either just want to pretend that it's not there or we don't know what to say if it comes and confronts us. But I believe there is a way where we can reach people for the gospel and this would really help us and equip us. So we'll send out uh, a link this week. But God's big story is that such a, this world is real. The world can rest in God's finished work for us. Genesis 2.2 tells us the seventh day of creation was Adam's first day. There is a world where we can work without feeling the weariness and emptiness and frustration of a fruitless toil. Genesis 2.15 tells us that our work has always intended to be good. There will be a world where our enemy is defeated and there is no more pain or suffering. God is offering everybody that very thing. The thing we're all longing for through faith in Jesus Christ. The first two chapters of the Bible are mirrored in the two last chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21-22 makes constant references back to the first two chapters. But it does more than that. It tells us of a story. It's the start of a story that is only a taste of the brilliance uh, which can be ours at the end. The story starts in Garden Paradise with two people. And it ends with a vast city paradise, so vast that nobody can count. It starts with a man and woman, but ends with a crowd so huge. It starts with a sneaky, lying snake that we're going to look at next week that allows death and destruction to enter into the world and into the human heart. But it ends with the destruction of the snake and death defeated forever. 
It starts with God coming down to visit the people he created, but it ends with God bringing heaven down to earth to make this city paradise his new eternal dwelling place. This is why it's so important for us to go through this. It's to lift our eyes up. We can watch the news or hear what's happening in our schools or in the churches in this nation. We go, oh, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. No, we're going to lift our heads up and go, one day we are going to rest in his eternal fullness forever and ever and ever. And that is your destiny as a Christian. People talk about, I talked about this the other week, people talk about their own personal destiny. Our destiny as a people of God is to rest with him forever and ever and ever where there will be no more pain or suffering. That's why it's so important that we should tell people about this. So important. Because there are scores, hundreds, thousands, millions of people now heading towards a place outside of God's eternal rest. The Bible calls that hell. And people joke about hell. Like it's just some sort of nightclub where all the cool people go. That's not how the Bible describes it. It's going to be eternal. There will be grinding and gnashing of teeth. And we need to tell people about this. God is coming. He has already come in the person of Jesus. So you don't have to be a brilliant storyteller to make this sound good, like good news, because it is good news. It's the best news that any man or woman could ever hear. And we need to pray for hearts to be open. In him we have value and worth. In Jesus you have a hope that all suffering will be eradicated, that you will one day live in this perfect world that we see in this creation story. And we can know and rest in the fact that this world, your life, is not about you. It's about bringing glory to the one who made you. It's about enjoying him and making his name known. Now, I've tried to tell people about Jesus all over the place. Many different countries, actually, in the world. We've done street evangelism in lots of different places. And without doubt, I would say, Seven Oaks is the hardest place I've ever had to do it. Because people are all okay. They're all very nice. But actually, we need to try and reach people for the gospel, to say, actually, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? And most people will have some vague belief that they've made up in their own minds. Say, well, you know, I've been a fairly good person. And, and people slip into my good deeds will outweigh my bad. And God will accept me. But actually, when we hold that up to God's holy law, people, we have all lied. We have all stolen. We have all look to other people in lust. We have all taken God's name in vain. And I'm not saying this is the, necessarily the, the one way to do it, but we need to say, hey, you've broken God's holy law, and before the holy judge, you stand condemned. But then we can say, hey, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came down and stood in the courtroom and took your punishment, your your um, debt and took it upon himself so that the wrath of God came down on him when he died because the wrath of God will come down on you if you do not put your trust in him. That is where we need to point people. 
to the cross. They might be wealthy and happy in Seven Oaks, but this is for, like a glimpse compared to all eternity. And let's, let's really dig into this series. Let's enc- I encourage you to read these verses, these stories in your own time as well so we get to see the bigger picture because he always had a plan, a plan of salvation. And we, when we realize it's not about us, oh, we can breathe. It's not about us. It isn't about you. And weirdly, when you stop focusing on yourself, we stop focusing on ourselves because I am not excluded from that because I think about myself a lot. When, I, when we stop focusing on ourselves less and more on him, it's only then you start to find the sort of joy and peace that the Bible talks about. The one who made it all, made you. He sees you and knows you. He loves you. He, so much he paid a price for you so that you could be free. You could be reconciled to him. This great gospel story tells us we can now have a sure and certain hope in the presence of God and be with him forever and ever. And one day, we will have perfect pain-free bodies. Who's looking forward to a perfect pain-free body? That's 99% of us. That's very good. We can marvel at the work of his hand, creation, but marvel what he has done for you and in you. We're going to dig into this over the next few weeks. We're going to look, as I said, at the fall of man and Adam and Eve turning their back on God's design. I'll just encourage you to do that. Let's be praying for our children and our youth um, as we go through this, that we all get the bigger perspective, that our hearts will be set on fire for God and for his mission and for his word. Wasn't it great that we heard about, you know, we had 45 noughts to 12s last week. You know, and with the youth in the evening, we had 70 noughts to 18s. That's a church, isn't it? It's to be praying for that, praying that there's a, 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 an enthusiasm and a passion for his word and that the Holy Spirit starts to work in them and they can then go out and be history makers and change people and the environments around them. Come on, let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good and perfect plan. That even though right from the beginning we turned our back on you, your plan was to always redeem and have a people for yourself and to bless the nations. Lord God, and I thank you that we, Lord God, thousands of years later get grafted into that promise as your people, for those that put their trust in you. And Lord God, I want to pray for those here this morning that would not yet call themselves Christians or are just looking in. Lord, I pray will you start to reveal yourself, Lord God, in their hearts. And I pray for a day when they call out and cry out for mercy and forgiveness. Lord Jesus, help us, Lord God, as we start this series Take your word seriously and your mission seriously. Help us keep our eyes fixed not upon ourselves but upon you, Lord God. Holy Spirit, will you just be 
throughout this series and just ignite young hearts, Lord God, in the kids' work and youth work and crash, Lord God. Ignite our hearts afresh, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, for this week for opportunities for each of us to speak about you, for divine appointments. And I pray, Lord, for wisdom and courage and boldness for us, Lord God, to speak truth about the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.